Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I'm a co-host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, Amy Brown, Hughes, and Jules martinez Olivieri. We are so glad that you're tuning in here. We've got uh, an exciting new episode, and I hope you enjoy this one. Uh, if you'd like to support OnScript, you can do so at onscript.study forward slash donate. We depend on the support of our listeners and, and no advertisers um, to keep this going. And we really appreciate those of you who have given and will give and are giving. And um, if you're not able to give, maybe you could give a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. That's always appreciated. Or, of course, you can share the word as you hike down the Appalachian Trail this summer or the Pacific Crest Trail. Uh, you know, pass the word on to uh, another a fellow through hiker. All right, enjoy the episode. Welcome, OnScript fans. I am here today with Christopher Seglaniks. Am I saying that correctly? Seglaniks? Good enough, yes. Well, how would you say it? Seglaniks. Let's hear it correctly. Seglaniks. Oh, that makes much more sense. Uh, Christopher Siglenix is a, a New Testament lecturer at the Bible College of South Australia. He's written many articles on faith, belief, and devotion in the Gospels. Uh, and, and he has also written this monograph for the Morzebek Wundt 2 series called Johannine Belief and Greco-Roman Devotion, uh, to which we are going to turn our attention to in this episode. But first, I want to explain my absence. Uh, so many of you have been emailing me saying, Drew, why aren't you doing these episodes of OnScript anymore? And it actually came down to an issue I had with Matt Lynch. If you're a regular listener to the show, you know that Matt Lynch is kind of, he runs the show. It's his baby. Him and Matt Bates started it. Um, and so he basically put me on a one-year suspension uh, because he didn't feel that I was actually devoted to the show because I had this other podcast that I did. I did like 50 episodes last year and he saw me, my attention slipping away. And and he had a sit down with me where he had said like, look, I don't think you believe in this, like that I'm the guy who runs this show. Like I'm the one who has this power and like we're friends and we have this like close personal relationship and all, but you're not doing the things that you need to be doing uh, to like participate ongoing in this show. So you need to get out there, beat the bushes, let people know that you're in it to win it for this show, that you're going to pump out some episodes. And so I committed then and there that I was devoting myself to the OnScript podcast, just like I hope all of you will as listeners. Uh, and that brings us into uh, Chris's uh, thesis a little bit about the idea of devotion. Uh, we'll come back to my devotion to Matt Lynch, my personal devotion to Matt Lynch and his projects. Uh, but first, Chris, uh, could you tell us about how you came into scholarship? I think Bible scholarship is the weirdest form of occupation or being in the world in some ways, the greatest and weirdest in many ways. Um, and so how did you come into this uh, this world of Bible scholarship? I guess I came into it uh, initially through training for ministry. So, um, so I've been my... I guess early to mid twenties, felt something of a call towards ministry. Um, did a three-year degree, 
um, and moved towards pastoral ministry. That's where I felt I was being called. But uh, so at the same time, had a couple of my lecturers suggest that maybe I might want to think about doing some further study as well. And at that point, I thought, well, that, yeah, that sounds like a, a reasonable idea. idea. I enjoy studying and learning and even had the thought that maybe it might might lead to something like I could be a pastor and teach a subject here and there uh, on the side. Uh, so, yeah, I ended up doing uh, a little bit more uh, study as I was pastoring and eventually ended up uh, in a PhD almost by accident. Uh, it started off as a, a master's and then uh, decided to upgrade that to a PhD, uh, partly because uh, in our uh, context here, there was some more uh, government regulations in terms of you had to have at least a PhD to be able to teach uh, for if you're doing an MDiv or something like that. Uh, so I thought, well, I guess if I'm going to need a PhD anyway, if I want to teach at all, I'll go and do the PhD and uh, ended up really enjoying the whole process, uh, the study and research and writing side of it. But also, as I started to get a t chance to teach as well, I've really enjoyed that as well. And so uh, it's fascinating when you say people encouraged you to think about graduate work. Um, it's funny for most people, they say, I was thinking about doing a PhD and everybody told me not to do it <laughs> because there's no jobs, there's nothing here. But I'm, I'm wondering, going back to you, I assume that says an undergrad, they were encouraging you to go on and do postgrad work. Uh, do, do you know like what, what it was you think they saw in you? Like what was it particular papers you wrote that keyed people in that like, oh, this guy's really capable or something else? I'm not sure. I, I mean, I don't think they, they said exactly that there was one thing that, that said, said, made them think that I'd be a, a brilliant scholar or something like that. But I guess obviously they saw uh, that potential and the ability to do the research. And I guess they're both people who are committed to the idea that we, we need well-trained uh, Bible scholars and theologians, not just for the academy, but also for training the church and uh, being yeah. involved in the life of church as well. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's good. good to hear that they were thinking that way. Um, so I want to get into the book, but I want to actually start at the end of the book, or at least the second half of the book rather than the first half. I This is my, maybe like, Maybe you just hit all my sweet spots, but this is my kind of mon I have never read a Moore Zebeck monograph faster than I read yours. Uh, and that was partly because it was so well organized. Uh, and it's one of those things where you had this thesis, you had this rubric for thinking about this idea of devotion, and then you just walked it out in all of these different spheres. Spheres, sorry. Um, and so that I think that was very helpful. And so this is a book that I think anybody at any level of, you know, anybody from, uh, you know, undergraduate, upper level undergraduate, uh, PhD to scholars can read this fairly quickly and get a lot of meat out. It's also bibliographically dense. You give us a lot of, um, uh, especially Roman, uh, Latin literature that I, you know, I'm just not hip on. So, um, I, I'm trusting you that, that all went through the editorial process and it's all true and good. Um, but I want to talk about that Roman view of worship because I think that's the part that most of us are going to be the least aware of. Um, so could you set the scene for us? And you can speak very broadly in sweeping terms. But what did 
Roman, uh, Greco-Roman worship to the gods look like? Uh, you know, if you're a workaday person, if you're a person of renown in your community, what what does your relationship to the gods basically look like? Okay, I guess one of the first things to make clear is just there wasn't the same divide between religion and other parts of life in the ancient world. So religion just was part of all aspects of life. So when you when you got up in the morning, you may have made some sort of little offering to your household gods before you went out for the day or anything like that. Um, so it, it's just part of the everyday rituals. Uh, there would be uh, statues of the gods maybe on the street corners. Uh, again, people might just bring offerings as they go past. Uh, of course, we've all seen pictures of, of the monumental temples that were uh, part of these ancient cities, and they back then would even more have dominated the landscape of the cities. They'd be right in the center of the cities, huge imposing buildings. Uh, but the interesting thing being, they weren't like a church. You don't go into a temple. Uh, they'd have their altars out the front, and so people would come and do sacrifice out the front in the full view of everyone. So you'd see these rituals, these ceremonies happening out the front. And uh, also things like processions were a big part of, of the religious activity. So uh, that may involve carrying statues of the gods or goddesses through the city. Uh, like for example, in Ephesus, they'd have a procession along so the big main streets uh, from from the Temple of Artemis right through the center of, of the city. And so, again, that would involve everyone. Um, there would be eating and drinking associated with it as well. Some of the big festivals, the elites of the city would provide food or wine for people to share in as well. Uh, but I guess as well, it was a there's there's a lot of diversity in the religious world of the ancient ancient world. So, uh, and I try and pick up on some of that in my book because uh, the first chapter of on Greco-Roman religion, I try and focus on, I guess, the Olympian gods, so Zeus and Athena and and those sort of things. Uh, but then I also in the next chapter talk about things like worship of the emperor, uh, which I think in in previous scholarship. Uh, perhaps perhaps not in the last 20, 30 years or so, but before that, it was often seen as very political. And so sort of one of those things that people do for show, to show they support the emperor, but without it being that religious uh, in the way we like to think of it. But uh, I think that's trying to force ancient practices too much into our own ideas of what religion is. Uh, but then I also look at things like uh, the cult of Asclepius, which is a a great cult, but very much focused on healing. And so people would come to these sanctuaries and sleep in the sanctuaries and have dreams of the God and get told what to do to get healed. And the other one I look at is the cult of Isis. So that's one that's originated out of Egypt and brings some of the, the imagery especially, but to some degree, some of the practices from that Egyptian context, but mixes them with more traditional Greek and Roman practices. And, and so you've got some sort of a melding there. Um, and yeah, so I guess 
big thing is just religion would have been everywhere, uh, uh, every yeah. every part of life. Um, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. I think with our students, we constantly are having to say like when they say, "Well, were they religious?" And you're like, "Well." The, the way we use the term religion and the concept, it just doesn't fit at all. And I think you do a really good job of showing that kind of infusion of devote. And you use the word devotion, which I actually found uh, very helpful because it's a mediating word uh, between a couple of other ones that have been thrown around lately. Um, I wonder if the word worship even works because I think I, when I use worship, even in the, I teach old Testament. So, uh, when I'm teaching the Hebrew Bible and I say worship, I know all the Christian, not even, even the non-Christian students are thinking of like going into a church, singing songs, maybe raising their hands or doing something like that. And that's all they have for worship. So is it, do you think there's a better word than worship that will help us here? Yeah, I, I guess worship, we tend to think of those outward signs. So, Things like yeah, singing, doing the actions, the rituals, perhaps. Uh, whereas it, it doesn't necessarily encompass the the internal dimension as well, which is what I was trying to get at with this idea of devotion: is that it could encapsulate both those outward rituals, uh, actions, words, but also more uh, internal aspects, whether that be ideas of cognitive belief or uh, a sense of a relationship with a god um, yeah that, that's what i'm trying to do with that term anyway yeah and and that those five aspects that you gave uh cognitive relational ethical that has a public witness and then um the other one that you i think you got from john and then moved over the ongoing aspect of uh the worship i Interesting, Erin Heim, I remember her book on uh, adoption, the use of the adoption metaphor in Paul. She talked about how it was often the case that people would adopt, or at least sometimes the case that people would adopt their own slaves just so the person would continue the worship practices on behalf of the deceased, uh, the rituals. And so I think, you know, the, the, the other aspect uh, of Roman religion, at least, uh, is the this idea that the priesthood aren't necessarily experts that you discuss uh and that the rituals are basically uh it's really they need to be performed correctly uh and, and yes, so yes. how would you how do you think rituals fit into this whole because i'm a ritual guy like uh, I, uh so I, I was constantly thinking like oh exactly how do rituals fit into this whole spectrum yeah and and rituals a tricky one to deal with sometimes just because we have so few records of what the actual rituals look like um, particularly if you're talking a, a sacrificial ritual uh, basically because it, it's assumed knowledge like because it right. is every day everywhere you see it all the time you know what you need to do and so yeah that's why the priests the high priests essentially of the the cults in any major city are going to be from the wealthy elite they're not people who've devoted their lives to this particular god it's this is a, a status position and so yes they have this role in performing rituals but they know what to do because they've seen it their whole life and growing up and and i think also we, we need to be a little bit careful in distinguishing roman and greek religion to some extent and 
in in Roman religion, there's very much that emphasis on the ritual has to be performed just right uh, to the extent of things like having someone play background music so that the, the person speaking the words doesn't get distracted and say the wrong thing because otherwise they have to start all over again. Uh, whereas there doesn't seem to be quite as obvious a, a concern for those the minutiae of, of the rituals in the in Greek context quite as much. Um, but yes, the, the, the rituals are clearly central to all of all of the Greek and Roman uh, religious activities. That, that's and basically that that's why I point out is the biggest contrast between what we see in the Gospel of John and what we see in the in the world around is that John doesn't provide us with any sort of religious ritual. I mean, mm -hmm. even compared to the other Gospels, we see there's no telling of the Last Supper. And even Jesus' baptism is only indirectly narrated. It's not actually, you don't, you don't get the telling of the events as part of the narrative. It's John, John the Baptist says, this is what happened. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah. So can I, can we actually just hop on that bandwagon for a second? Uh, and well, why do you think that that is with John? Do you think it's just uh, the other gospels are already circulating and he can do something, he can act more freely on this front or what would, how would you speculate? I suspect that the other, um, John probably is aware of at least one, if not more of the other gospels. And so there is some degree to which he can just assume some of that knowledge. But as, as I sort of, one of my main ideas in this thesis is that what John is trying to do is teach people how to believe, not just who to believe. And so by deliberately downplaying those ritual elements, I think is, is aimed especially at a Greco-Roman audience to show them the right way to be devoted to Jesus is not by just taking the, the rituals that you would normally do for Isis or Zeus or Apollo or anyone else and just applying them to Jesus. Actually, it's going to look different. And so by, by downplaying things like the Last Supper, there's less chance that a reader coming to this text with ritual as their central part of devotion to the gods is just going to go, oh, look, there's a ritual. Let's make that ritual the central part of our devotion to Jesus. Now, John never condemns participating in those Christian rituals. And I think one of the functions of uh, John 6 is to, uh, I guess, give some implicit uh, support and explanation of the Last Supper and how that might be celebrated within the church. In the weirdest way possible. <laughs> yes, yes. But, but yes, obviously de-ritualizing it in some sense. In uh, yeah. So, yeah, trying not trying to teach people that, yeah, we don't need to make ritual the center. Yeah, that, that's very helpful clarification. Um, it, it also feeds into, you discuss uh, emperor worship in that second part of uh, Greco-Roman worship. And you say it's primarily, it's ritual-centric. It's primarily ritual-oriented. So I, I think that was actually a little bit surprising to me because I'd only read the Pliny letters and I kind of knew the basics. Mm -hmm. uh, but you, you went a little bit further. So what, uh, if we were to just slice off, what does emperor worship look like, you know, that, that century before and after Jesus? Well, the primary 
description, I guess, for emperor worship is that the emperor is to be offered honors like the gods. Uh, so basically, the rituals that you would normally do for the gods are done for the emperor. So what does that look like? Well, for starters, there's a whole heap of statues of the emperor, and they start being put sometimes in their own temple, but also often in another temple along with the other gods. Uh, and so trying to suggest that, look, the emperor is one of the gods like these other gods. And so, yeah, people would make uh, offerings, sacrifices to these statues, uh, uh, prayers to the, to the emperor as well, uh, pray, prayers for the emperor, but also to the emperor as well. Um, so, yes, yeah, so there seems to be a little bit more to it going on than just a sort of political devotion. Uh, because uh, one thing, they you could get little devotional statues of the emperor to put in your own home. And so that suggests How that cute. this is more than just doing it out in public so everyone can see. But there is some sense where the emperor is, I guess, central for the ongoing well-being of the empire. Yeah, and that kind of uh, fits with this idea of there's a, you outline this kind of sliding scale of personal closeness between the, the worshiper or the devote, devotee and the gods. And and the emperor, you put a little bit more on the distant side, I guess, which is surprising because you think the human, the actual living human that you would, might be devoted to would be the personal close one and the ones that the gods and the heavens would be away. But why do you think that is? Um, that they get, they can be some become so intimate with the gods. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess the the intimacy with the gods in the Greco-Roman tradition is a lot through things like dreams and visions, um, and so certainly in some of the traditions, like uh, with the cult of Asclepius or the cult of Isis, uh, this idea of having dreams of the gods is is a recurring one and seems to be quite important and uh, so we, we find um, so, some ancient authors seem to have this ongoing relationship with one of the gods and and some sense of sort of getting personal revelation from from the gods and that sort of thing whereas there do, I, I haven't seen any sources at least that suggest that sort of relationship with the emperor uh, it seems like with the emperor you either know him personally as a person or you're worshipping him through these rituals with a statue and things like that. There's not quite that sense of personal interaction in a divine capacity, I guess. Well, it makes sense. If you actually know the emperor, you might be less likely to <laughs> to worship them. <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, that's that's helpful. Yeah, it makes me wonder if uh, just thinking about um, elements of ISIS worship uh, working its way up. I mean, the, the Egyptians, like the Mesopotamians, had a heavy uh, emphasis on dreams as revelations. They even have dream incubators going back into, uh, I think, the Bronze Age even. Um, do, outside of the, the Delphi Oracle, do we have any sense of something like that, dreams and visions, before... Uh, before Egyptian religion moves well, in? So Asclepius similarly has quite a long history of dreams associated with cures. Uh, and so uh, the 
uh, at Epidaurus, there's uh, inscribed records of a number of the, the dreams and cures. Uh, I can't remember. I think they date back for around the third, fourth century thereabouts. Oh, okay. um, but yes, that, that's, I guess that there's also the idea that in days gone by, the gods walk the earth. So like what you come across in Homer, um, now you don't get the sense that Greeks in the first century often thought that the gods would come and walk the earth on in any sort of regular basis. Um, but so Parsenius, for example, talks about that being as a previous age that the gods used to walk the earth, but now they don't. Uh, hmm. Okay. Um, so turn. So speaking of gods walking the earth, turning to the Gospel of John. Uh, Seems to be a, a heavy theme here. Um, so I have a, a basic uh, question for you. Uh, and it's it's the simple version of the question is, why don't the disciples ever seem to understand anything? Uh, I think you actually, you crack the nut on this one for me. You kind of gave me some better categories than the ones I had been using. Um, but you seem to explain from the Gospel of John, well, it's because it's not about cognitive apprehension, but it's about devotion, uh, and that's that's how it's 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 both and, right? And I think if you look at if you look across the Gospels, this problem of the the disciples' incomprehension, uh, which is especially pointed in Mark, where I did some work, but um, it's all cognitively focused. Um, and I tried to do some of the cognitive devotion, living it out thing. And I think you finally like bridged it in a way that fully uh, makes it coherent to us. Uh, but why don't you think in John, the, the disciples seem to understand much, although John, they get a better shake than most, most gospels. Yes. So John has a particular link with the disciples remembering later and particularly remembering scripture later um, so and I, and I guess you might see a similar thing in Luke uh, in some of the resurrection stories it's, it's particularly this being able to fully understand scripture and understand Jesus through that which now none of, none of the gospels are entirely explicit about how that works out but all of them seem to show it's not till after the, the resurrection that the disciples get it. Um, and I guess with, with John, that, that comes most climactically with Thomas, my Lord and my God, uh, and has finally put together what the reader of the gospel knows from the very first verse, and you see the disciples just slowly stumbling towards. Um, but yeah, you've, you've got that interesting dynamic of an ongoing lack of understanding and yet still commitment. Uh, and so particularly somewhere like the end of chapter six, uh, when, when many of the other disciples walk away, the 12 are, are committed. They say, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. And so there's, there's no sense that the disciples have fully understood what Jesus was just talking about yet they're still willing to stay with him and keep persevering. Yeah. Uh, no, that's, a, that's that, that element. I don't know why. I mean, after years of working on uh, Mark and this exact kind of issue, uh, and I, I had 
used every concept except the one of devotion. Like I dotted around it and was looking for it, and you just named the clues uh, that had been there in, in front of my eyes. So it was very helpful. I want to get into the particulars of John 1 through 4 and then 5 through 12. Uh, interestingly, you label John 1 through 4 as kind of like, I would say, an Aristotelian category, the genus of what this devotion might look like in a better form. And then 5 through 12 is kind of the differentia, the uh, this is, and, and not, you know, this and not that kind of a, a labeling of devotion. Um, so I'm going to give you each category that you spell out here. And this is these five categories we just mentioned. <clears throat> and I'll give you a phrase that you used. And maybe you can just explain what you meant by the phrase. Because sure. um, I found these very helpful. Uh, the first one was cognitive. And, and under cognitive, uh, in your conclusion, you say Jesus is the unique revealer. Why is it important for John that Jesus is a unique revealer? I mean, yeah. John, John is very clear that that the only way that you can know God is through Jesus. So no one has seen God, but the only God has made him known. Uh, and Jesus as the only son uh, is, is one of, the, is sort of, I guess, the central category for, for who Jesus is. He is the son. He's the one sent by God. And... Yeah, I, I guess within the broader theme of witness in the gospel, uh, that, that's a, a key theme right right throughout. And Jesus is the one who bears witness to God. Uh, it's if you know me, you know the Father. Uh, so, yeah, that that identity as the one who can bridge the divide between heaven and earth. Um, so this cognitive aspect, as you said, with all five of these aspects. Uh, cognitive, relational, ethical, ongoing devotion, and public witness, you say they would have all been familiar to anybody who was involved in Roman worship practices at that point, um, but they would have been a little bit estranged as well. There's a twist in some way. Yes. So in what way is that cognitive act aspect twisted in Jesus as a unique revealer or in John's gospel? So th there's not the same degree of emphasis on cognitive belief in Greco-Roman religion. It, it's not primarily a religion of what you believe. There are no creeds that would be confessed or anything like that. At the same time, you have to know something about the gods in order to be devoted to them. You, and you need to know not just, say, their names and their, their identity, but also which god do you go to for this problem? If you are about to go on a long sea voyage, which god or goddess do you go and give an offering to so that you can get to your destination safely? You have to have some idea of, of which gods do what. Uh, and so even if that's not always taught in a, a formal sense, uh, that is there is some degree of cognitive belief and and occasionally the the language of belief is used it's rarely used in in the greco-roman world uh, but it is there occasionally and i think some of the other cults can have a little bit more of an emphasis on the that cognitive side so particularly with the cult of isis there do seem to be written texts that uh, are significant. So there's a set of inscriptions that have been found across five or six different sites that 
are quite similar in how they talk about who ISIS is. Uh, and so that seems to there seems to be some idea of common doctrine there, perhaps. Uh, and there's also the the instruction that uh, initiates go through as part of joining the cult of ISIS as well. Um, so yeah, but they would have had some idea that religion could involve beliefs. But John takes it a whole whole level further in saying. Like the whole idea here is you need to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing have eternal life. So uh, that idea, and I think that this is new to me as well, that um, pistio and pistis, these particular terms for belief, now take on a fully new shade of meaning in that context uh, because they're not used very much in uh, Greco-Roman uh, devotion. Mm-hmm. And then, you, especially in the Gospel of John, which was probably the most intensive use of uh, pistuo and pistis and other other like cognitive terms. Um, so, how does that play into um, the the public witness part? Because I think that you you sew all these together in the conclusion that they're all interdependent upon each other. Um, but it seems that pistis actually performs a very different function in both the cognitive element and the in the public witness uh, as part of it as well. Yes, and I think largely because there is this these facts that do need to be believed, you need to have some sort of public witness so that people can know about it. And so, yeah, we, we, you have the the contrast of various ca- characters within the gospel where. Uh, some are quite open about their their thoughts about Jesus. So you might see the the Samaritan woman who goes and tells the vill- her vill- whole village uh, what she's heard from Jesus, and compare that to the the secret believers. So at the end of chapter twelve, some of the Pharisees have believed, but they keep that belief secret, and they're they're quite strongly condemned there. They're, they're seeking glory from man rather than God. And so, yeah, there's this real idea that belief needs to be public so that others in turn can can uh, come to come to believe themselves. And and I think this is where Thomas comes into the story. Uh, I think an important part of what's going on with Thomas is that his failure is in part a failure to accept the commission that the other got the other disciples have just received to go and be a witness and once jesus then comes to him then he becomes that witness he's the one who says my lord and my god he is the the i guess the pinnacle of witness within the gospel yeah so this all happens within this relational aspect as well um and, and the ethics and relation again are these these are we're we're disentangling something that's a Gordian knot here as the mm-hmm. way, but it works well so it's, uh before we get to the ethical more specifically, would you put public witness in the ethical category as well? I guess you could put it into that category in the sense it is something that you do publicly. Uh, I guess I felt that it was a a particular concern within John, this idea of witness and, yeah, picking up the theme of of witness about who Jesus is, the sort of trial-like language in chapter 5 especially, and then how that's 
transformed into applying to this is what discipleship looks like being the witness so I, I, I think it's important enough and perhaps perhaps not directly tied to the rest of the ethical language in the gospel in quite the same way and so I, I feel like it is its own category for John at least yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And especially coming out of the Greco-Roman uh, devotion, the idea of public, that's, you know, just the, the visceral image was not in my head until you uh, painted it for me that there's a necessity for the uh, for ritual and devotion to be public in the Greco-Roman system and, uh, and that this might be uh, mirroring some of that in some way. Um, Ethical, uh, I think. I think a lot of these will make a lot of sense to anybody who's read John once or twice, right? This, like, uh, anybody who knows me, sees me, hears me, does these things. If you love me, you do these things. Uh, so it, that seemed to be one of the more different, uh, one of the most strikingly different aspects of devotion here in John. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Yeah. There's certainly, certainly. I guess the scope probably of the ethical demands is is where the difference is so uh greco-roman religion always has some ethical component to it but it's often quite limited so for example it's about your conduct when you go into a sanctuary so uh they, obviously there's ideas of whether you bring the impurity of past wrong actions when you come into the sanctuary but also what you do within the sanctuary and things like not cutting down the sacred grove trees in the sacred grove things like that uh, because that's the god's property that's his or her particular place and that's where they care about and everyday life is a step removed from that and so where there might be some sense of a, a general ethical concern for the rest of life, there often seems to be a, a need for people to get the gods to pay attention if they think there's some ethical problem that needs to be addressed. So things like um, curse tablets and things like that are, are trying to get the gods' attention to what happened and uh, get the god to, to take an interest to act, whereas what we see in John is, is just that, uh, a demand on the whole character of life that yes, um, keep my commands. And, and I think it's deliberate that John doesn't give specific ethical commands. He doesn't give a list of rules to follow. The most specific he gets is love one another. And so, yeah, I, I think that's deliberately conveying that this is a, a whole character of life rather than just follow these rules and you'll be okay. Yeah. Um, it, it also, as soon as I get to that part, it, it was, it reminded me, have you ever read uh, Pierre Hadot's Philosophy as a Way of Life? Um, I don't think I know that one, no. Oh, yeah. It's it's great. I mean, he basically goes through uh, the Stoics and, and uh, from Plato to the Stoics, or Socrates, I guess, and just shows that 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 philosophy was never a mental game. Even in even in the Greco-Roman world, it was always like this holistic way of life for philosophy, which in some ways offers a roundabout, you know, a philosophical critique from within Greco-Roman philosophy of Greco-Roman devotion as mm -hmm. well. Um, so this is, you know, hey, we're the guys who take this seriously because we do this in all of our, you know, this this is all coherent in the whole life picture. 
Yes, yeah, and and that's obviously philosophy is where the the Greco-Roman ethical thought and and everything works out a lot more than in the more obviously religious sphere. Now, obviously, they're not not completely separated, right, right. but <laughs> yeah, the, I guess the the, the philosoph philosophical motivation for ethical conduct is more about living the good life. However that particular philosophy wants to characterize that rather than doing what the gods require. Yeah. In some ways it's a breaking or at least a partial breaking from the system. Although no philosophers seem to really want to fully break with it. And that might've been, they just didn't want to get killed. I don't know. <laughs> Perhaps a bit of that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to end this with a speed round uh, because I don't want to ruin the book because there's lots of gems uh, throughout and it's definitely worth, uh, it's worth the money, worth the read. And again, the easiest more Zebeck book I've ever read in my life. Uh, Glad to hear. It's like, it. Yeah, no, it was it was a delight. Um, okay, so the rules of the speed round are: we'll try to keep our answers quick and on point, and and you know I can be as cheeky as I want here. So, uh, simple one up front: what biblical or theological work has had the greatest impact on you as just as a thinker? Like, what really changed your world? Well, I guess one just because I've been thinking so much about questions of belief is Teresa Morgan's Roman faith and Christian faith. And I think that that's been foundational in shaping how I think about specifically the language of belief and how that's used. Excellent. Uh, you know, Matt Bates, who is a co-founder of OnScript, uh, he's written a little bit on this. So in three to five words, what's, the, what is the biggest problem with Matt Bates, uh, pistis as allegiance view? Like just take them down in three to five words. Matt, I hope you're listening. <laughs> uh, try to think of that. You, you can have more than three to five words. That was... I guess I thought maybe you had a bumper sticker like on your car. It's like Matt I, I, Bates I, I, I think sucks the language, on I think, pistis. I think the language of, of allegiance is really useful for yeah to throw into the mix for how we talk about belief. Uh, it perhaps doesn't convey the that the cognitive belief side of things, which I mean perhaps we're we're too ready to uh, assume that belief is cognitive, and so if we throw allegiance alongside that, then perhaps the two terms together give us a better idea of what's going on. Yeah, I think he would say that. I think that's where he would go to. Or, or legions always has a cognitive element like devotion. Yeah, excellent. Okay, so I'm going to test your knowledge. Have you ever spent any time in America? The United States I, of? I have been at once for SBL, that's all. Oh, which, which one? San Diego. Oh, I was just going to say the best one. Okay, so you, you've been to the best location for SBL, so they will all be downhill from here. Um, okay, so I'm going to test your knowledge uh, of Americana poetry. So <laughs> if I told you that Jimmy cracked corn, how would you feel about that according to the poetry? Um, was, that, was, was Jimmy feeling hungry? <laughs> <laughs> the correct answer was I don't care or and I don't care that's a, the finish the line there that's okay it's okay like we're just trying to figure out like I asked a German guy last time uh, Christian Eberhardt so um, okay what's one of the most memorable or awkward things that's happened to you at, at a conference or a classroom or you know one of those formal academic settings 
I uh, had, had one one this semester where, where people were arguing whether one of my jokes in a lecture was actually any good or not. <laughs> <laughs> that, there, were, there were supporters as well as detractors, but <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, well, as, as a father of all, young adults, I feel like this is welcome to my world. I, I don't know <laughs> if you have kids or how older they are, but uh, in their late teens and 20s, like that's all they do is debate it's usually not much of a debate as to whether my jokes are funny or not so my, my kids are four and seven so they still laugh at me oh yeah yeah the, take suck up those uh sympathy, sympathy laughs as long as you can okay um what do you find most troubling or maybe challenging about the bible definitely one of the things would just be the whole question of violence um and just how to read all the passages that either depict violence or talk about violence together in a way that that does justice to all of them yeah um, are you uh, talking about all the ones in the gospels or the ones in uh, the old testament too? Pro probably the 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 combination of gospels and old testament like it feel, feels like the gospels seem to be fairly clear that violence is not on it's not what what followers of jesus should do but then how how do you hold that with pictures of god as a warrior for example and and just having a a, a harmony between those i guess um well because i am such a devoted fan of dr matthew lynch i feel <laughs> obligated to say now i'm there is not a gun to my head uh that he has a book coming out with IVP called Flood and Fury, How to Deal with the, the Violence in the Bible or something like it. Flood and I'll Fury is the name. I'll have to look out name. for it. But it's, I've read the, the manuscript. It's, it's fantastic. He does a really good job. He has a great Cambridge book on the grammar of violence in the Old Testament and where he actually looks at how the Old Testament authors talk about violence in his fantastic book as well. So, yeah, it helps. doesn't solve good. any problems, good. but it definitely helps, yeah. Okay, uh, this view of devotion that you discuss in this book, is it more, here's your two options, is it more like Jesus take the wheel or what would Jesus do? Are you familiar with both of those? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Did both of those horrible expressions of Christianity make it down to Australia? <laughs> yes, yes, I, I have heard both of them. Yes, so we had the, the WWJD bracelets and everything. I always like to point out that the, the people who trademarked the WWJD, then went on to sue a bunch of churches and youth groups who put that on their t-shirts and stuff. Uh, yeah, it was... Def was definitely what Jesus would do. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, finally, uh, the most cruel question we ask on OnScript is, uh, what was the most significant book uh, in biblical studies in the last 50 years? From Johannine Studies, given, okay, given the, fair enough. the... Everyone else seems to like to talk about Paul and all those other things. Yeah. Amen, um, amen. But within John, um, J. Lee Martin's um, history and theology in the fourth gospel has just shaped how so many people have then tried to read John since then. Um, and actually just working on a project now, trying to, to revisit the whole idea of the Johannine community and what's the context in which John and uh, maybe the letters of John are written. Uh, 
Yeah. Yes. So in avoiding a Paul answer, you gave J. Louis Martin, right? Uh, who's who's written a bit on Paul as well. <laughs> Maybe just a little bit. But... <laughs> Excellent. Well, Chris, Siglenix, uh, Sig- mm-hmm. say it again for me. Siglenix. Siglenix. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. And the book, again, is um, Johannine Belief and the Greco-Roman Devotion. It's in the Morzebeck Wundt II series. Thank you very much for the book and your time all the way from Australia. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.